So I think we stopped Romans 8. As I, you know, I was teaching class last week, wasn't here, I just had kind of a leading thing, and I'm trying to study it, but what was it, I guess the summary, why did he go to Jerusalem and why did he do what he did that he got in so much trouble? He went to Jerusalem because he felt the Spirit was leading him to go. He had money to give them for the famine, famine relief that he had collected from Asia Minor. And uh, he also felt that the brother needed to see him face to face because so many rumors were flying about what he was doing and how wrong he was and all of that. The Judaizers were were just hounding him and yeah, they they thought he was um, breaking the law of Moses because he wasn't advocating circumcision for everyone. So he got there. He met with the brethren and. They said, you know, Paul, there's so much flack about you and so many uh, beliefs uh, that you're just not in uh, you know, a law keeper. You need, why don't you go with these two men who are visiting who are under a vow, and why don't you join them and go up for purification to the temple? <clears throat> and because he wanted to be in favor with the brethren, he wanted to be conciliating, he wanted to be one with them he uh, decided to do that. That was his mistake. He should not have done that. So they were still trying to follow Christ and... And keep the law at the same time. Law of Moses. Keep the law, because they wanted him to go up to the temple to be purified and stuff. These men had taken vows, and he had taken a vow himself. And the, when you took a vow, you're supposed to go through certain rituals in the temple. And they went... He did that, but and they accused that. him of yeah. bringing in someone who was not allowed to be in the temple. Right. A, gen- a non-Jew. A, gen- a non-Jew, a Gentile. punishable by death. Yeah. So they, they were out to get Paul. And that's what led to his arrest and his going to Rome and all of that. So they, did they set him up, or was he doing this under his own volition? He, he did this under his own volition, but he was not supposed to do it. Ellen White makes that very clear, that he did wrong. It just shows you how we can be so close and still make these major mistakes and stuff. It's just yeah. yeah she talk, She goes on at length to talk about how the church was so greatly deprived because of his death mm. that they could have had many more years of Paul. Well, didn't someone prophesy that that was going to happen and he still went? Yeah, Agabus. So, yeah, right. And so, but it, you know, it, but he said he, was he claimed to go the, there. that the spirit was driving him to do that. So I've always wondered about so Agabus. I, is why, what was his role, and did he, was he supposed to stop there? I think Paul was supposed to go to Jerusalem, but he was not supposed to go to join them. He was supposed to be incognito. I don't know. Uh, we can ask Jesus when we get yeah. to heaven about <laughs> all of these things. Yeah. Maybe he got a little too full of himself. I don't think so. I think he was just really desperate to be in harmony right, with his brother. Yeah. Which, which you know, for our situation right now as a church, <laughs> this is yeah, yeah. this is such a a lesson to be learned. Yeah. That there's a time there's a time to compromise and there's a time not to. Yeah. When it, when principles involved, mm-hmm. we're not to compromise. Yeah. No, that makes a lot more sense to me. Like, all right. So I think 
I think we are starting at 26, which means that we could finish the chapter today. Well, don't give us false hopes, Jean. <laughs> <laughs> you have your doubts, don't you? <laughs> so we did go through the groaning last week. Some of the groanings. I don't remember going through the groanings. You don't remember the groanings? I guess we went through them then. We talked about creation. Well, maybe we didn't go get that far. I thought, grown inwardly as we wait for adoption. Yeah, we. I remember the redemption of our bodies. We did a little bit. So likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the, that very Spirit intercedes with sighs, too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As I recall, we did that one too. But we'll go ahead and do it again. What is intercession about? God knows what's in our heart. Why does he need someone to tell him about it? I think it's about God wanting us to be, in, well, this is the way I've experienced it, is God wanting me to be involved in the what he's going to do for a specific person. I mean, because I've always had a hard time with intercession because I'm just, I have a hard time anyways. It's it's difficult for me to like oh no if I'm just saying to pray have I prayed have I you know all the, you know just the burden of that kind of thing but but there's times when I've been very intentional about praying for someone and then when the the prayer is answered I feel like oh my goodness I get just as much joy it's like this is awesome so I feel like it's about our what God wants to do for us and our faith is it possible is it possible that because we're free, God does not trespass. He does not walk into our domain uninvited. Well, that's what I took it that he can do a lot more for us, but he, he can't do it if we don't want him to. Otherwise, the game yeah. is not equal. We have to ask. Yeah, because otherwise Satan says, well, look, you're just taking care of these people. Well, but then the question is, if we're interceding for someone who is not allowing... What is that? But that's still is, it, is keep, there an allowance. Keep in for mind it? keep in mind yeah, keep in mind the book of Job. Mm-hmm. And the boundaries that God seems to have to work against. And if someone if he can find one person to have you considered my servant Job, this is a property issue there. Because when the Satan says, I have come from walking up and down upon the earth and going to and fro upon it, that's property. Mm-hmm. He's taking out his claim on earth. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, God has these boundaries, these limited. But when we intervene Mm -hmm. as a friend to someone and intercede, then he can do so much more. Mm -hmm. I had an incident happen in my youth. I hadn't finished college yet. I was in my early 20s. And I had a friend. I had roomed with her in the dorm. I was no longer in the dorm. And she called me up and... She had a boyfriend who they were sexually active, and it was really, he was not good for her at all. But she did not want to listen to her parents. She did not want to listen to anyone. And I tried to suggest some things gently, and she just, nope, would not have it. 
And I thought, this girl is in a desperate situation. This this man is just not good for her. He's abusive. He's, he's, I'm trying to find the right word. I don't want to use the word I came up with. Um, vile. I almost want to say vile. Um, because of some of the things he put her through. I didn't know what he put her through until afterwards, but I knew enough to know this, this is just not good. And I felt really depressed because I wasn't able to get through to her. You know, she, she just was closing every door. And so I, I ended the phone conversation and I went out and I had two other, my, my housemate and a friend who had also I'd roomed with, had roommates for very short times because of various reasons. And I said to, um, I said to them, you know, I'm really concerned about so-and-so. I said, and I told them what I had just experienced, and they said, well, why don't we have prayer for her right now? And so we prayed. And I have a, a particular prayer that I pray in a, that kind of situation that I only rarely pray, where I call taking it to court, <laughs> where I imagine myself going to the heavenly mm-hmm. courts and bringing this person to God and praying and, and, and sensing all the sons of God and angels all there, like in Job, and praying, just really praying uh, for that person. And I did that. And I, I had this awesome sense of being there. You know, I, did, I wasn't there, obviously, but I had this awesome sense of being there. And, and, and my two friends were just ama- were really amening <laughs> my prayer when I got through. And, and then I, did, I didn't think about it anymore. And weeks passed, and then she, this uh, girl called me again. She had kicked her boyfriend out of her life. She had a court restraining order on him. He was not allowed on campus. <laughs> she was done with him. She was horrified that she had ever gone that direction. Uh, she then told me the kinds of things he did to her. And it was just, it was, there was like just healing mm. that had taken place. It was just dramatic. I was just in shock. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. you really did do something, mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I've never forgotten that, that intercession mm-hmm. moment in my life where God could do so much more, apparently, because we prayed. But this is, this is not us praying, right? This is the Holy Spirit interceding for us. I want to challenge something you said at the beginning. You said, uh, God doesn't break boundaries. But I think about the incarnation is God breaking uh, a boundary Mm -hmm. because he Mm -hmm. comes into Mm -hmm. our domain. He's Mm -hmm. uninvited. That's true. He doesn't. That's true. And intercession for me is, is the same, is breaking Okay. Boundaries. Yeah. But it has to come from here. And that's why he had, in in part, why he became a human being, is so that he could be an intercessor. But I want to make clear that one thing that God, that Jesus doesn't do, is beg the Father to love us. The Father already loves us. That's really clear, right? Because I understand more and more. God knows everything. He doesn't need Jesus there telling him who we are, what we need, or. Or begging for us, it makes sense to me. 
But I. It's not a human court. But I, I, it is though a court that's not just made of the Trinity. It has all these angels and sons of God, and they have to be convinced. So it's for it's for the universe. So think about Zechariah three. Well, it seems like the Holy Spirit prays for us because we don't know ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to just open this up a little more broadly. Uh, Zechariah 3. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, old Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, not man, is this man not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua's dress was filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And he said to him, See, I have taken your guilt away from you, and I will clothe you with festal apparel. And he said, Let but them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with apparel. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. See, and, and you, you look at Job. <clears throat> you have the accuser. The accuser is not God. The accuser is Satan. He is trying to convince the universe that we, aren't, we can't be saved. That's his role in the court. And God is the kind of God who wants to carry his universe with him. I mean, that's why Paul really makes it clear that Jesus died not just for us, but for the angels. The, he died to bring the all. Uh, in in the Greek, it's ta panta, the everything. The every the, it's it's equivalent, I think, to das alles in German, <clears throat> which means the universe, the whole, everything. But seeing that that whole Babylon law constructed into the world is it, and I think people, as I understand it, that were translating the Bible were in this construct too. They keep thinking of human types of you got to have a judge, a jury, you know, a witness. But they make the judge the accuser, and that's where they're exactly. off. Right. And so then we read this differently. So I'm more understanding that the intersection is with the rest of the universe, not interceding with God. Right. He intercedes before God, not with God. Right. And, of course, the word intercessor is um, paraclete, paracletos, the paraclete, the one who stands beside us, the one who comes alongside. It is not intercession in the sense that we think of it. In fact, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus takes that whole metaphor and turns it upside down. The father goes out to intercede with the son, <laughs> with the older brother. The word is the same. So, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, but the Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, what the Spirit does is, in, what, what does the Spirit do with our prayers? It seems like He kind of transforms them into what, <laughs> what it really is. Yeah. Are our prayers perfect? He transforms them, I said. Oh, okay. Our prayer is perfect. I know. <laughs> what about, what is it, Psalm 138, um, 
from what you're looking at above is talking about what we hope for. We don't even know what to hope for. Yeah, we don't even know how to pray. And sometimes we don't even know what to say. So let me try Psalm 138. I think that is... We have mind, but spirit is something else. Spirit is another dimension, and we need the Holy Spirit to communicate that with God because that's what's missing in us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have spirit, but with God's spirit. Our spirit is, is far from holy. Mm-hmm. Yes, mind, mind and spirit have to come together. And only, that can only come from God. So, um, verse 19. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me, those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And the angels say, Okay, God, he hates his enemies, and you love his enemies. How are you going to answer his prayer? The Holy Spirit comes along and says he feels deeply stirred <laughs> because he does not, he abhors what they're doing. Okay? And Jesus translates it further. I, the way I, I've come to see Jesus' intercession is that. You know, we talk about wearing the robe of his righteousness and his character being, I can't remember the word, imbued in us and, and um, imputed imparted. to us. Imparted. Imparted to us, but also imputed. I see him as in the courts taking our prayers and showing to what extent they line up with his character. And he interweaves his character in and among our prayers to show... It's a kind of editing process, <laughs> if, if you want to use a human concept. I mean, that's a very weak concept, but I, I don't have a better metaphor um, where he, he transforms our prayers. And, he, and it must be happening in the heart as well. well the, spirit, the Spirit isn't just working on our words. He's working on our hearts as we pray. So because the, the psalm ends this way, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He has this, this sense all of a sudden of the Spirit working on his heart that, that maybe this isn't the best prayer to pray. Maybe he's not to hate his enemies or God's enemies. So that's where the Holy Spirit educates you and convicts you then. Right. I, I see it very experientially. Right. So I like that idea experiential because it's not just some sort of smoke and mirrors and something kind of, it's really an experience that we're having. And we're part of that experience. So it's not just something happened to us like you wake up like, oh, I guess suddenly I'm this way or something. It's really a, a living interaction. That I mean, some people do have dramatic conversions where oh, they, yeah. they're suddenly a different person. Right. Um, and they, don't, they can't explain that. Right. But Ellen White does point out that there's been an un- a conscious or an unconscious process going on for some time before that actual sudden event happens. We think about how important God's Word is to God. I mean, His Word is... Uh, 
trying to think of the right word to describe it, but it's solid. It's it means something. It translates into something else. Mm -hmm. And yet our words are. Uh, can be feeble, you know, fleeting, like ropes of sand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think about that passage in Scripture where it says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to be void, mm. but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Uh, it's like God by sending the Spirit to mix with our prayers, is doing that with our words. Because His Word is so powerful and effective, He wants our words mm. that we speak, because we participate in Him, mm. to have that same power and effectiveness when we ask. And that's why we find Jesus emphasizing, ask, ask, just ask me. Mm. Ask the Father for things, and you shall have it. It's to do with the word and its power and empowering our words, right? Mm -hmm. As feeble and weak as they are, mm -hmm. empowering us with the same mm -hmm. uh, powerfulness that his word has. Mm -hmm. What the Holy Spirit does, and notice he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When our feeble prayers, as you put it, don't do that. You know, we don't always pray according to the will of God. We pray according to our will. This is what we want. And he takes that, those prayers and shifts them according to the will of God. Which in turn transforms us, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. As, as we get the answers and the responses, mm -hmm. all that wasn't quite what I prayed mm -hmm. for, but I'm going to have to muse on, on what you said for a while going to wrestle with that in my mind. So, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good. Or, another uh, text, this is textual criticism now, another text says, we know that in all things God works for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. The way it's written in this text here, people misuse this so much and it creates a lot of animosity with people. Well, so they assume that it means that God's going to make everything come out right. Yeah. And that's just not what he, he works it for good. And not everything works for good, but God works everything for good. And I think I, I like that other uh, textual. Can you say it again? In all things, God works for good for those who love him. So read it the, the correct way. Well, I don't know that there's a correct way. Uh, we know that the, the traditional way is we know that all things work yeah, together right. for good. The, the way that there's another text that reads, we know that, all th we know that in all things God works together See, that for good. See, that one little... It, it, it's a theological issue versus a grammatical issue. Yeah, one is grammatically incorrect, and the other is theologically so correct. Heard people through the years bring up that text, and they just are really struggling with the Lord with that one. Like they've been raped, they've been pillaged. Well, I think people end up using it incorrectly, like a just like saying a pat answer. To yeah. someone saying something horrible, well, God will work it all for yeah, good. It's right, like, yeah, well, right. well, no, that's not what that verse is saying, I don't think. But that's I think it gets well, used. Nothing bad will happen to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or that if something bad happens to me, he'll make it so hunky-dory that... Yeah, make it all okay, see? Yeah. And, uh, mm. so that... So, I, let's read this in context now. We know that in all things God works together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is the one that the Cal- our Calvinist friends love to pull out. Say, see, which which present predestination. Mm-hmm. Which verse, Jane? Twenty-nine. Twenty-eight to thirty. Yeah. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined right. to be conformed to the image of his son. So when you've studied the Hebrew, is it, is it predestined? You mean in Greek? Yeah. It's. Uh, I think so. I don't think there's a debate over the term. The Greeks had a very strong concept of destiny, mm-hmm. predestiny. But this verse is no problem at all. It says, for whom he foreknew. <laughs> so, Didn't he foreknew everybody? Well, yes. There's no problem with the Calvinist understanding here. There's other problem tested against Romans 9. But this one really is not... Uh, a problem. They marry so, it to other ones. So are you saying that he foreknows everybody, therefore he predestined everyone to be conformed to the image of his son? Well, foreknowledge doesn't take away free will. That's the oh, issue. Okay, okay. Does God's foreknowing mean that everything is determined? Or is his foreknowing simply Just mean that. he's God, he knows he everything. Knows. He knows yeah. right. What's behind us, he knows the future, he knows the present, he knows everything. But this doesn't take away our freedom of choice. Even if he predestines us in his foreknowledge. Well, he foreknew, he knows the choices that we are going to make. Okay. He's God, he knows the end from the beginning. But it says, for whom he did foreknow, like what you're saying, but he also did predestined. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. he knows the choices that we will all make. See, here's the thing. The Calvinists like to say, uh, ones who believe in predestination, double destina- predestination, God knew at the beginning, uh, he decides who he is sending to hell, mm-hmm. and he decides who is going to heaven. Right. And there's right. nothing anyone, any individual can make. There's no decision that can be made. It's all preset, predetermined, which is very much in line with Greek thinking, ancient thinking about the world. They have this idea of fate. The gods determine your fate, right? It's married to this well, type of and, thinking. And the stuff I've been reading in the 1200s, at least at that point, the Muslims believed in fate and predestination. Who? The Muslims. Oh, the Muslims. They, they believed in fate and predestination. So everything was done in your life is based on that. They also had a phrase that they bring up that <clears throat> if you're falling with God, no, if you're if you're with God, life and death are a pleasure. And I was thinking about it, thinking about it, 
And, you know, it's not saying life is fun, happy, gay, and everything, but actually most of our lives we think it's kind of a pleasure. We're not always into doldrums and sick and et cetera, et cetera, death and dying and that. And death for us is a pleasure because when you wake, you're with God. But some of these concepts, they must be permeating the whole world about fate and predestination. Oh, it underlies many religions, many religious views, and non-religious views, too. Mm -hmm. So how do we explain this, then, theologically? What would Sister Wider, what would people say on this? Well, Adventists reject this idea of monogism as a theological term, that it's just God that's involved in the decision-making process. And we believe in, uh, it's called synergism, which means that we participate with God right. in this process of our eternal destiny and that each person uh, is given a choice and God knows that choice uh, even if it's someone that was just uh, born a baby and then dies, right, no matter what their age, God knows the choices uh, that we would all make to follow him or not follow him. So there's an element of freedom. The freedom of the individual to choose is is preserved. Like you said at the beginning, the idea of God not breaking or respecting boundaries. I wouldn't say God doesn't break boundaries, but he respects mm-hmm. uh, the choices, the ultimate choices that, that we make. And I think what is so hard for both Calvinists and the open theism group, which are the two opposite extremes in this discussion, it's hard for them to accept, is to understand, is how God could foreknow and we still be absolutely free. Because it it doesn't, there's no freedom in this passage. There's nothing, there's no discussion about bringing in our own freedom. We have to assume that from other places. But those whom he foreknow, it's a straight line, a linear line, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in order that he might be the firstborn. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, it's a straight line. Mm-hmm. No getting off right. anywhere. Which means it's not absolute freedom, right? We wouldn't use the term absolute. But the but words, it's freedom, if they're translated correctly, don't give me any sort of concept of freedom in there. But I, I don't know how we can grade freedom with absolute and not absolute. Well, yeah. Um, either we're free or we're not. Well, if we? we well, if we know that God wants us all to be with Him, and and we're not all with Him, isn't that proof of the freedom? I mean, we, do you know what I mean? He's yeah. not forcing those that are not with him. Right, right. And isn't that enough right. proof to show that there's freedom? Because we know what he wants is yeah. all. And that's why I have been tempted to read this, that... And he doesn't get his wish. Right. He tries to save... I mean, I think the Bible is quite clear that God is trying to save everyone. Right, right. right indiscriminately right he died for including all. including those he foreknows are going to reject him he works maybe harder with those right. to try to win them to him right. than those he doesn't foreknow i mean those he knows that foreknows those that are, are going the to 99. accept him yeah <laughs> the 99 or safe in the fold well i don't want to spend a lot of time this is a, this is a very controversial text 
but I'd, I'd like to move on to 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I think this is what we need to tie on to the previous verses. This is what Paul's final line is. It isn't the linear approach, the straight jacket approach to salvation. It is what we to say about this thing, if God is for us, who is against us? We are in, we are not out. That's Paul's statement. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. It's almost like Paul is including all of us as predestined. Uh, will he not with him also give us everything else? Right. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God, Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For your sake, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is really where he's headed. The, the way he gets there is a little difficult, but that's his main point, is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can put us out of his hand as long as we choose to be in him. Right. So those who choose to be separate from God's love, that's, that's to me, that's, again, just proof of the choice is always there. Because those who say, I don't want anything to do with God, okay. Because that's not his wish, according it's to not this. His, wish. his will that. is that all be saved. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He knows they aren't going to all be saved, but his will, his, pre, his predetermined will, is that everyone be mm-hmm. saved. Well, like you say, he knows those, those, yeah. those that continue to go against the way it was designed. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of what he did with Satan. I mean, we don't know how long he was up in heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, Before he finally said... Alan says he. Alan says he was he bore long with yeah. Lucifer, and long in God's eyes is very long. So this right. wasn't a short time. This battle going on in heaven. No, this is going on. It could have been a millennium. Yeah, yeah. easily been in a millennium. Yeah, right. I wouldn't think that would have been a quick decision. No. Yeah. You know, um, I I, I want to. Step back now and, and look at this in terms of how the dynamic of how God runs the universe. I attended a constituency meeting for the Northern California Conference many years ago in the PUC Church, and this was um, this is probably 1998, 99, somewhere around there, and um, we were and still under the shadow of the 1995 General Conference session that voted to not ordain women. So the constituency meeting, there was somebody who really wanted a certain way, certain thing done that there was a lot of arguing about and, and, and 
Tom Mostert at that time was uh, president of the Pacific Union Conference. He went over, I mean, he, he allowed all the discussion to take place. He, he allowed it to just freely go forward. He didn't try to curtail it. He didn't try to tell them how to vote. He didn't do any of that. He just let it all play out. And the vote ended up being no, and the person didn't get his way. But, but it was well discussed. <laughs> then somebody brought up from the floor <clears throat> that they didn't think that that we should have ordained women elders. And so Mostert asked the group of delegates, what is your view on this? And there was a roar in the back, no, <laughs> to no to not ordaining women. And so that failed. And afterwards, I was out here in the parking lot and I, I happened to run into Tom Moster, and I said, I want to thank you for the way you handled the constituency meeting, you, that you allowed such freedom to discuss and to go through and any doubters, and, and it had to be resolved and ratified by the group. He said, well, it does seem pretty messy and untidy, but he says, I think the alternatives are not very good. And I've thought about this in connection with God, he created every being unique. Everybody is, has their own individuality, whether angel or human. We all have our individual minds. We all have our unique ways of thinking about things. And in eternity, when the rebellion began, God took the long route of letting that discussion go on and on and on and on. He never played dictator. And so it seems to me that when we, when we look at this whole process of God deciding and determining saved or lost, that when we see it the way it actually happened, we will see that we had perfect freedom and that God had perfect foreknowledge. And we'll see, I think, how that works. Because there's a lot of people who think you can't have both. And, and they're, they're on the two extremes, the Calvinist side and the Bopentheism side. Well, God's a lot of both and. <laughs> we just, our brains can't, our, can't we, we can't because we, all. <laughs> we, we cannot We cannot see how it works together, right. how they work together. Right. We can't see that. You know, this last part to me this is just sublime, and, and yeah. I almost feel like I can't discuss it because it's just like, ah. Oh. Exactly. You through it so quickly. I know, I was trying to honor Ed's request. Want- <laughs> we, can go, we can go back. No, we can go back. We can go back. We can go back. Yeah, next week. Right, why don't we, we rediscuss that next again. week? Yes. Yeah. Just 31 to 39, yeah. I think we can do. Well, let's do it for sure. And then we have the hard chapter, <laughs> chapter 9. Mm. I just don't like chapter 9. It sounds very arbitrary, that's why. <laughs> and we come from an Armenian tradition. <laughs> you hardly, actually hardly hear Adventists preaching on Romans. But mm. Romans is the book that has spawned so many revivals and... Reformation and 
spirit working. Mm. It's a good book for us to be in. Yeah. It reminds me of being in Cambridge, England. I spent five days there because of International Society of Biblical Literature meetings. And uh, I was with Nancy LaCourt before she became dean. We were walking along a street, and there was this big building, very functional building, not ornate or anything. And it had this one little door, very functional door. And it was just this solid wall except for that door. So it was just very plain, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing to look at. And this door, and there's a plaque by the door. And the plaque says, The English Reformation began here. Mm. <laughs> wow. And I looked at that plain building and the door, and I was like, Really? This is so incarnational. <laughs> which one were they talking about? The English Reformation. Mm. That's what they said. The English Reformation began here. Seems there's been many reforms. Well, but there has, but the English Reformation usually refers to the one that uh, Tyndale and King Henry VIII, because of his, his six wives, began. <laughs> the English Reformation has a very muddy history. Mm. It, it, uh, all I had to do was read. I got stuck in the Heathrow Airport coming back for hours because I had gotten bumped off my flight and they had to find me a later flight to go on. So I was, I was stuck there, and I went to a bookstore, started looking for some book I could read. and The only one that really attracted me was this big, thick book on the Six Wives of King Henry VIII. <laughs> and I started reading it and read about how his, his evil ways helped, to, helped the Reformation to happen. <laughs> because his, the reason he rejected the Pope and kind of started in his own English church uh, was because he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn and the Pope wouldn't let him. Oh my goodness. 